Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Authentic Woman. This is your host, Shannon Fisher. Thanks for joining us tonight on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We've got a really important show. Uh, And before I introduce my guest, I'm going to tell you the story about how tonight's show came to be. When I was in Philadelphia for the Democratic National Convention, my car was towed. And when my Uber driver, when I gave him the address, he said, are you sure this is the address where your car is? And I said, yes. He said, okay, I will take you there. And he seemed a little hesitant. As we got closer and closer to the area where my car was in lockup, the the area just became so much more impoverished. And, And it would go from, you know, buildings that had been renovated to buildings that weren't quite in upkeep to buildings that had bars on the windows and then there were boarded up buildings and then there were buildings that were missing and lots that were filled with overgrown weeds and and as we got closer there were more and more people actually on the street uh some of them doing drug deals on the street corner in plain view in the middle of the day uh some prostitutes walking on the street and most of the stores were closed. The ones that were open had, had bars on them. And I looked in the eyes of some of these people, and, and they just all had a thousand-mile stare, even the children that were on the street. I, I never knew anything like this existed in the United States. I mean, I've, I've seen poverty around the world, and I've seen poverty in the United States, and I've been in really bad urban areas and extremely impoverished rural areas but this is a pocket of despondency and detachment and incredible poverty and it was like i had been driven into another world so as we got to the place where my my car was being held the uber driver looked at me and he said i'm not leaving you here and i said what he said i'm gonna i'm gonna pretend to be your husband and we're just gonna go in there and i'm just not gonna leave until i'm certain that you are in your car and outside of this lot i said okay thank you and so we stepped outside and as we're walking he said yeah i'm not leaving you and i just looked at him he said you you spend 10 minutes on this block and nobody would ever see you again so i get my car And I'm a little bit curious, struck an emotional reaction. There was this one 14-year-old girl that I just saw walking down the street, and and I just thought what her life must be like, the things that she must have seen and experienced, and the fear that she must have felt at certain times living in this basically third-world area of North Philadelphia. I wanted to imagine what it was like to try to develop some sort of empathy for this type of life and and I drove around for it took me a while to to get home and I took a couple of detours uh one of which took me down a street that had a bunch of industrial buildings that were completely empty there were no cars clearly it had been some sort of some sort of industry that that had closed and I became really curious about the history of it so when I got home, I, I did some research. I, I, I couldn't get it out of my mind. So in my research, I discovered this area is, is called the Badlands, and it is one of the worst areas in the entire country. And I came across some, some papers and some videos about the status of living there, and that is what led me to my guest tonight. He wrote a book called Code of the Street, Decency, Violence, and the Moral Life of the Inner City. And he based it on Germantown Avenue, which is the road uh, on which my car was being kept and uh, is, is very well known as, as one of the main thoroughfares in North Philadelphia uh, that goes right through uh, the worst area of town. 
Uh, his name is Elijah Anderson, and he is the William K. Landman Jr. Professor of Sociology at Yale University. He also d directs Yale's Urban Ethnography Project, and he used to be a distinguished professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's been doing research on this topic, uh, specifically in this area, for years and years. And I, I read the book, Code of the Street, and I, I could not put it down. And we're going to talk about that tonight. And we're going to talk about the, the things that he learned as he meandered through and interviewed a lot of people in the area. And I could not be more proud and excited to introduce to you Elijah Anderson. Elijah, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. So we're going to be talking about uh, actually two of your books, The Cosmopolitan Canopy and Code of the Street. You are an ethnographer and you're a sociologist. So I, will you explain to the audience exactly what ethnography is and how it fits into the greater field of sociology, please? Sure. Well, ethnography is the systematic study of culture. And culture, for our purposes, is a set of shared understandings that develop as people go about meeting the demands of everyday life. And as they problem solve, they understand, they, they obtain knowledge, and they share this with others, people they care about. And uh, these become sort of ways of life. People live by these uh, codes, they live by these understandings to some extent. These understandings uh, morph into a kind of a local knowledge, what the community knows, the common sense of the community. Well, the ethnographer is interested in apprehending, comprehending, understanding, and then representing that local knowledge to paint a picture, to paint a picture of the way of life of a people. And that's what I've been doing in my work over the years. And it is very good work. The, the pictures you paint are, are crystal clear. It is, I was, uh, audience, I was telling him before we started the show that uh, Code of the Street is it's one of the best books I've ever read. It, I could not put it down because it was such an, an ideal glimpse into this, this world that a lot of people don't even know exists. Uh, so a lot of the work that you've done is surrounding the city of Philadelphia. I know you, you lived and worked in Philadelphia. So what inspired you to, to take these journeys to this particular line of work? I care about the city. I care about trying to understand the city. I care about writing about the city to uh, debate and discuss the issues of the city with my colleagues who are sociologists typically. But my writing is accessible to a wide audience. So people uh, in, uh, outside the academy uh, become interested in the work as well. But the work is really written for within academia, but also that in the larger society. And uh, when I was coming through graduate school, uh, there were a lot of discussions and debates about these very issues. These were critical issues. And I wanted to contribute to that discussion. And so I uh, began to study the problem. My dissertation was uh, a place on the corner, which is a study of the Black Street Corner men in Chicago. I was at the University of Chicago when I began that study. And that study, um, the place on the corner, is a study of the of how people live on a street corner in Chicago. And then I spent the next uh, years in Philadelphia studying various parts of Philadelphia, living in various parts of Philadelphia, and becoming very, very interested in the issues that were facing um, black people in particular, but also the larger society uh, there. 
and so my books, uh, uh, Streetwise, Code of the Street, The Cosmopolitan Canopy, these works basically uh, try to apprehend the condition of people living in Philadelphia, but also to represent um, as accurately as possible uh, the lives, the life ways of these of these these individuals, and that's what I do in the book. And the ethnographer works by getting close to people, by spending time with them, by walking in their shoes, literally sometimes, eating with them, drinking with them, discussing issues with them, um, getting close to them, having uh, intimate conversations with them, but then trying to paint uh, an accurate picture of what's going on, and not with regard to politics but hopefully with regard to what people are living and experiencing every day. These works that I've uh, mentioned are ethnographic uh, accounts of, of life in Philadelphia for the most part. And I think also it, it Philadelphia is, is kind of a, a microcosm of uh, urban America because a lot of the issues that you discuss that are specific to the individuals and the specific areas in Philadelphia really are all around the country impacting inner city people, uh, especially the de-industrialization. So you, you interviewed a lot of people in North Philadelphia uh, along Germantown Avenue. It starts on one end in a fairly well-to-do area and then runs down to Interstate 95. And, and along the way, uh, socioeconomic class changes and the racial makeup changes. So if you could just kind of uh, take us down a little bit of a stroll of Germantown Avenue to give the audience an idea of the, the makeup of the urban North Philadelphia. Well, I've lived in various parts of Philadelphia. The uh, Germantown Avenue is one of the oldest streets in the country. It goes, goes back to the uh, Revolutionary War. And the Battle of Germantown was fought on Germantown Avenue. But the the at the top of the hill is um, is is a is a is a setting of well-to-do, um, essentially white people. But increasingly, um, these people are joined by ethnic minorities: um, uh, Italians, Irish, uh, Jewish people, black people. But these are middle-class people, oftentimes, and it is a virtual, a cosmopolitan canopy of a sort today. Um, now, tell our audience what the cosmopolitan canopy is. You've done uh, a lot of work on this exact topic. So what, in your definition, is a cosmopolitan canopy? Well, after doing so much work in the city, um, looking at uh, these urban problems, um, crime, violence, um, code of the street, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. my family moved to Rittenhouse Square, and Rittenhouse Square uh, is the premier park, uh, public park in Philadelphia. Not far from there is the Reading Criminal Market, which is a wonderful place. And as I lived there, I began to uh, see these places up close. And these places are uh, virtual islands of civility and diversity in a, in, in a sea of racial segregation. Philadelphia is one of the most segregated cities in the country. Sure. And it has a storied history. But in Philadelphia, you have these islands of civility where various kinds of people come together. Black people, white people, gay people, uh, all kinds of people. And they get along. 
it, it's, it's a superficial getting along, but they get along, you see. People, of course, this is a veneer of civility to some extent. If you dig deep enough, you can, you can see tensions, and sometimes there are tensions in such places. But the canopy is a wonderful place, an island of civility, diversity, where all different kinds of people are sort of trying each other out. They're getting along on the surface, and that's a good thing. Sure. Um, but, of course, uh, these canopies have fault lines, uh, places where people do have tensions and all. But typically, these come and go. The big story is, is that it's an island of civility that has implications for how we live our lives in the larger, larger society and what we, as a country, maybe hope for one day. The, the, the canopy is a, is, a, is a place of diversity and typically of uh, civility. And so Chestnut Hill uh, is, is, is such an area. Yes, indeed. And you, my book, Code of the Street, begins at, at the top of the hill, mm-hmm. uh, Chestnut Hill. And, of course, uh, Germantown Avenue goes through the city. It goes completely through the city, through various neighborhoods that are um, um, working class, poor, well-to-do altogether. And as you take the trek down Germantown Avenue, you see... You see Philadelphia in a sense, and that's what I did for this study. I, I, I walked the streets of Germantown Avenue from the top to the bottom, through the bad neighborhoods, through the good neighborhoods, through the marginal neighborhoods. Um, I walked the streets and I met people and I took notes. I, I interrogated people about their lives, how they, their issues, their problems, their concerns, and a lot of that's represented in my book. Code of the street, and the argument here in the code of the street is that we, as a country, um, have been going through this uh, process of deindustrialization. Right. And when this happens, of course, the jobs, the, the old manufacturing jobs, go literally um, out out to sea. Uh, first, to non-metropolitan America, the suburbs, then to Mexico, and then to China, to India, to uh, developing countries, uh, leaving unemployment vacuum. Uh, in the inner city. Uh, the old jobs were um, relatively high paying, but low skilled, and people without education could work in these occupations and make decent livings. And um, black people in particular were drawn from the South uh, to work in these kinds of situations. Immigrants were drawn to this country to work in these kinds of situations. But with the deindustrialization, those jobs go out to sea, and the jobs that are left are oftentimes much more complicated. And, of course, the lowest levels of the emerging economy, the service economy, don't pay people enough money to live, essentially. Right. And so as this has been happening, what we have in these urban areas is a kind of structural poverty that, that knows no color, but, but, but it tends to be racialized. Um, black people, white people, new immigrants, all, uh, to some extent, are affected by this emerging service economy and, 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 the, and the low levels at which, which they're paid. So there's a kind of structural poverty that goes on, and to the extent that one is black and poor, it's very hard to get, get out of that. And, of course, in the poorest communities, people have developed an underground economy you know, to deal with uh, it, and the underground economy uh, consists of three prongs. Welfare payments are what's left of those low-wage jobs are what's left of those, and then the idiosyncratic, irregular economy of, of hustling, bartering, uh, begging, and to some extent street crime. 
And so all of this works to allow people to circulate uh, capital or money within that community. And I talk about this in Code of the Street. Of course, uh, a lot of the transactions that people engage in in the inner city poor communities uh, are going on without the benefit of civil law. People don't sue when you have a debt. People sometimes get in your face. Right. At the, at the same time, the, the wider society uh, seems to have abdicated uh, any responsibility to the community. When you call the police in some of these communities, they don't come or they come late when, when all the trouble is gone. But by the time the trouble is gone or over, uh, somebody is shot, wounded, killed, whatever. And that's something um, that, that struck me so uh, so strongly in your book, is that you said the code of the street is where the rule of civil law ends and the necessity to uh, completely take care of yourself begins. And that is so striking because when these, when these civil services cease or are minimal, you know, when police don't respond to calls about criminal activity – uh, you are kind of forced to learn to take things into your own hands, and the evolution of that, as you describe, is fascinating. Yeah, well, people take matters of personal defense mm -hmm. in their own hands. They take responsibility for their own defense and that of their loved ones. And so the coin in the community becomes street credibility. Uh, I won't call the police, but I'll deal with you myself. And part of this is because the civil law has eroded in so many of these communities. And when the civil law erodes, uh, street justice oftentimes fills the void. And uh, that's when we have the, the violence, you see, because as people uh, mediate disputes and what have you, sometimes it does come to that. It comes to violence. And street cred becomes everything. Street credibility in the community, at, at ground zero anyway, is, is, is high maintenance. You don't get it once and for all, but you have to keep on um, uh, working it. You have to keep on establishing it, and it, it, it's through that establishment of, of street cred that we have so much uh, violence, and to the extent that the underground economy is prevalent, this has implications for the high violence rates in the communities, the killing that goes on in Chicago and Philadelphia and other places uh, is related to the the, the uh, erosion of civil law and in many ways the abdication of the larger society in terms of the police and the economy, you see. Absolutely. And the the isolation and the the creation of their own society and their own rule of law, uh, it, it perpetuates the necessity to get that street cred. And people who otherwise were born into what you describe as uh, two kinds of sets of families, they are the decent families and they are the street families. And uh, children who are growing up in decent uh, households who are, you know, law-abiding and trying to avoid the, the street code, they have to blend in with that violent element in order to survive. So tell me a little bit about that. Most uh, Americans don't realize this, but, but, but most people living in the inner city are decent mm -hmm. and, and, and trying to be decent. But you don't get this from the media. You don't get this from the movies. You don't get this from the 
the television programs that purport to talk about the black community, you know. Right. You know, but but there are many, many, many people in the inner city who who mimic um, the family on Little House in the Prairie, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, but you don't you don't hear about these families. These are the quote unquote decent people, and these are their words. They're not my words. Uh, decent, and uh, there's also the term street, which is not my word. It's a word the people themselves use. You see, the ethnographer is interested in the words and labels that the people themselves use. So, street and decent are words that are common in that community, and it's used as a way to distinguish. Uh, one type of person from another. Mm-hmm. And, um, but see, the decent people in the inner city poor communities, because of the abdication or the sense of abdication of the authorities, um, the decent people are on their own. So they have to deal with people who are street. In order to deal with those people, they have to get street themselves somewhat. Mm-hmm. And so they code switch. They go from street to decent oftentimes. They meet uh, circumstances that they need to meet uh, to defend themselves and their loved ones and their families. Many people growing up in the, in the inner city who are able to survive had this um, exquisite ability to know what time it is, when to be street, when to be decent, and they code switch. Code switch being switching from the decent values to the street values in order to to be a chameleon within their homes and within their communities. And you you describe in in Code of the Street a situation of of one family who sheltered their daughter in such an extreme manner that she was not allowed to leave the house. Uh, mm-hmm. Other than to go to school, and so what was the what was the thought process behind that, and and what would lead a family to be so so strict with their child in that environment? Because the the outside environment is considered to be so so rough, mm-hmm. you see, um, and so unforgiving, and so to protect your child, you 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 teach them uh, quote unquote decent values. But you also uh, protect them by keeping them at home. And sometimes this means not even letting them play with their cousins who might be, you know, oriented towards the street, that kind of thing, which is, which was the case. And, um, so yeah, it's a very tough environment to be sure. But it, it, it's really important for people to appreciate the fact that there are decent people living in the inner city. Um, Donald Trump's, uh, comment, um, a few weeks ago about, black people and how they have nothing to lose um, seems to indicate that um, he believes that all black people are street, so to speak. I know. All, right. all black yeah. people uh, are, are in this situation and are, you know, buying into the street values, but that's not true. My research has shown that, that the community itself is divided uh, between between street and decent. And most black people in these communities are decent and trying to be decent. They go to church. They try to raise their families well. They try to teach their kids right from wrong. And for the most part, the kids know right from wrong and do behave that way. Yes. But it's the street element that gets promulgated. It's the street element that gets uh, celebrated by the larger society in movies and books and you know, uh, films, all of that, music, yeah. all of that. But but life in the community is far from that, if you follow me. Most definitely. And one thing that, that struck me as really important to note is that 
uh, people within the community and outside of the community. So let's say teachers in the schools or potential employers or people in public spaces uh, like these varying degrees of canopies have trouble discerning who is a decent law-abiding person with wonderful values and who is uh, someone who lives by the code of the street simply because the style of dress tends to be the same in order to project an air of uh, don't mess with me, I can handle myself. So tell me a little bit about the necessity of um, of presenting oneself as someone who is capable of violence. Well, in order to survive in the community, it's important even for the decent uh, young people to act as though they can handle the streets, that they can hang, so mm -hmm. to speak. And these kids are code switching oftentimes, um, but to have any credibility, one has to dress the right way, one has to look the right, right way, one has, one has to, to some extent, mimic the street, even though within, deep down inside, the kid might be a decent kid all the way, mm -hmm. but decency doesn't get you very much on the streets, you see. Sure, and so, respect. Right, exactly, exactly. Respect is the currency. Respect is it. street credibility, respect, that's the currency. At the same time, it's important to appreciate the fact that, that the larger society um, has an image of the black community. I think this is what Donald Trump was trying to get at, you know, uh, this, this, this iconic ghetto. See, the iconic ghetto can be traced back to slavery. After slavery, blacks migrated to cities, and, of course, they were contained in black communities. And slavery established the black body at the bottom of the order, and the, the ghetto communities that developed reinforced this uh, position. And over the years, we've had this um, the civil rights movement. We've had the racial incorporation process, which meant that the, the black middle class grew, uh, and it has grown. It's the largest in history. And many black people today live outside the ghettos. They live in middle class communities. Of course. They, they work in corporations. They work in universities. They work in government. They're, they're in, in many situations and places where they used to just not be. But the iconic ghetto is so strong, so powerful as an image that basically it tends to supersede this uh, position, the status, you see. And so it becomes a kind of master status that people use to define uh, black people. So as black people move about in the larger society, they oftentimes have to, have to disabuse people of the idea that their ghetto stereotypes apply to them, you see. And this is part of the problem. Again, what was going on perhaps and what Donald Trump was trying to say, you know, because he has this image of the of the iconic ghetto, you know, which a lot of people have of the black community, right? Without any recognition that the, the that the huge black middle class exists outside the black community, because you, these people have black skin, you see, and that black skin associates them with the with the hood, with the ghetto, you see. Absolutely. But many people don't live there anymore, right? See? And and you say that. Uh, that middle-class blacks and affluent blacks feel the need to claim and demonstrate their place in society because they feel like they are being judged as 
having been from the ghetto and just a generation or two from the ghetto and and they really feel like they need to dress uh, better than others and drive better cars than others in the community than people of other races to show that they belong there. So tell me a little bit about that mindset of middle class blacks and and what they deal with when people like what Donald Trump said kind of lumps everyone with dark skin together into that stereotypical ghetto mindset. See, middle-class blacks run into this all the time because of the phenotype and black skin. They're associated, you know, with the ghetto before they can uh, prove that they're uh, anything else. So it involves quite a bit of work, so to speak, for uh, them as they deal with uh, the larger society, uh, much of which is unenlightened. We've had a civil rights movement. We had a, we've had an incorporation process. We've had a growth of the black middle class, and yet. As black people move about in the larger society, because of the iconic ghetto, they move about with the deficit of credibility in the minds of so many other people. And so in order to deal with this so-called deficit of credibility, they have to disabuse people of the idea that the ghetto stereotypes apply to them, you see. Right. And this is, and this is the work that black middle class people oftentimes have to do in order to get treated fairly, to get treated as law-abiding and decent uh, citizens of this country. That takes us to the cosmopolitan canopy, when in an integrated space, blacks really have to navigate and think and plan a lot more than whites do because they are so conscious of how they're being perceived and how they are interacting. So tell us a little bit about the the extra societal burden that that blacks of of all socioeconomic statuses have to bear when in integrated public spaces. Well, it goes back again to the iconic ghetto. See, the iconic ghetto is um, is, is not only this place, quote unquote, where the black people live supposedly. But it's also a, a, a very uh, deep source of stereotype and prejudice and discrimination. And black people in the larger society have to have to deal with that all the time. You know, uh, it, it hovers over American society, unfortunately. Even the president of the United States runs into this problem, too, you know, because Absolutely. people are ready to assume so much that's negative about him simply because of the color of his skin. And the way the color of his skin is related to the so-called iconic ghetto. And for him, that ghetto is Chicago or even Kenya to some people. If you listen to <laughs> Donald Trump's early remarks about Bertha and all that, the iconic ghetto is always there as a, as a, as a reference point, you see. Mm-hmm. The place where people can re- refer blacks to. And it's ultimately uh, discrediting um, um, and Black people deal with it by working to disabuse um, people of the larger society that those stereotypes apply to them. So this becomes work. Uh, And once it's done, once the work is done, uh, and the person deals with the so-called deficit of credibility, unfortunately, the person then simply moves to a provisional status oftentimes, that is having something more to prove. And this uh, this is really uh, the problem of the new and emerging black middle class today. People with phenotype that refers them to the ghetto, but with 
with, but with skills and education and whatever that allows them to make claim on the best values of the larger society, you see. Yes. So this is the problem that black people have today. And I, I saw a Pew Research study that came out a few weeks ago uh, that struck me that said that affluent African Americans tend to live in areas that are lower than their socioeconomic status simply because it is it is less work and they feel more comfortable and less judged to take a step down in socioeconomic status of neighborhood. And what we have here really is the legacy of racial caste in America. We don't have a caste system in America, but we have something that, that mimics that. And in the old days of slavery, of course, um, there was clearly this caste system. And over over time, this caste system has become gilded, and it has allowed people to be mobile. And we're dealing right now with the legacy of that of that caste system, which has implications for how black people and white people relate to one another. For sure, for sure. And and I think that. A lot of people simply don't understand that that legacy continues and that work must be done to uh, to stop that legacy from perpetuating. I mean, when you when you wrote Code of the Street, you made a very prophetic statement at the end that if we don't address the situation of the inner city, of the iconic ghetto, of the extreme poverty, that racial tensions and societal tensions are going to get worse. And in the years since you've written that, that is clearly happening now with, you know, the the police shootings and the demonstrations and and riots and racial tensions, uh, at least from my perspective in my lifetime, have never been higher than they are right now. And so do you have any prescription for how how we can address that and how we can inform people who are not aware that that we all need to play a part in rectifying the situation so that we can live together in a cosmopolitan canopy with the same code? Mm-hmm. I have to believe that education is very important. Education, and I'm talking here about a a kind of uh, civic education that that we need to um, somehow promote, and it's through programs like your own and and other commentators and and uh, documentaries uh, that can uh, illuminate these uh, real conditions that we live in. I think that's where we advance. Really, we need the education uh, because we have we have grown. We have. Uh, had a civil rights movement, we've had a racial incorporation process, we've had the growth of a large black middle class. And at the same time, there are many people who are not convinced, not convinced. And so when they see black people, when they encounter black people, they want to relate to them as though they're in a caste position and some of the people have not gotten the news, so to speak. And I think education, civic education, is a big is a big piece of this. The recognition that we have these problems, uh, that we live with this legacy, this is what we need to understand, and then we can begin to raise questions and do hopefully do something about it. 
And I think fear honestly plays a large part in it because there is the assumption out there uh, that that young black males can all be dangerous. And so it's hard for a young black male to get a job. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard for a young black male to not be harassed. And, and viewed as someone who is a potential criminal. In a, a paper you recently wrote, you talk about uh, a law school student who was sitting at the bus uh, with his books and his groceries waiting to, to go back to his apartment, and he was suddenly swarmed by a dozen policemen and spread on the ground and, and accused of you know having committed a crime and he didn't know what was going on. So as he was asking questions, they were telling him to stop resisting. And I think a lot of people don't realize that that is a, a common experience among black young black males of all education levels, all socioeconomic classes, all uh, geographic locations. And over time, a little bit of bitterness develops because they they feel like they can never ever be fully accepted without being feared. So how, how do we address that fear? Well, again, recognition of the fact that we have the problem, I think, is a big part of it. The legacy of, of caste, this is what we're, we're saying here. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what this young man is living with, and uh, we need to address it. We need to educate uh, people. We need to hold policemen and others accountable when they do these things um, when they don't treat black people as full citizens um, we need we need to address the issue and I think we have to work to enlighten people about this uh, issue and that's you know we've come a long way but we have so far to go we do we have so far to go and and I think that the the greatest challenge is uh, in that inner city where there is a different code and it's a different world and they have grown to resent the outside world and the outside world has grown to resent them because there's a there's a misunderstanding there's a fear and even within the community those who are extremely decent people are posturing uh to appear that they could be dangerous for their own safety because that's what they have to do Within those communities, what can parents do? What can teachers do? Uh, and what can social services do? Uh, what can be done to make that posturing unnecessary? Well, again, I, I go back to the issue of civic education, and we need to uh, educate our public servants. We need to um, perhaps socialize them to the fact that we have these complicated complicated social issues to deal with, much of which has to do with this legacy of racial caste. We need to make clear that the that the iconic ghetto itself hovers over race relations in this country. And as it hovers over race relations, it, it, it basically places black people in a position of having to work, work for any uh, recognition of uh, their humanity, their civility, um, their education, all of this needs to be understood and appreciated. At the same time, it's very important to um, solve the problems, uh, the macro problems that are going on uh, in our communities and our cities. And I think really that, that nothing short of a kind of a Marshall Plan for our cities is in order to deal with the uh, fact that so many 
of the jobs and the opportunities uh, have left these communities, not not simply black communities, but but urban communities in general. Yeah. And we need to do something about that because that's a big, big, big source of the problem right there. Yes, and in, and um, in Code of the Street, you you tell a story of of one particular young man who who seemed to really be trying to get a job and live on the straight and narrow, and he was coming from a background of the drug economy, which essentially there there were no jobs, and so if you if you wanted to be able to have any income in his area, you you had to sell drugs. And and so he was trying to overcome that and trying to uh, get into a nine to five or an eight to seven seemed very willing to work, but really struggled with that. So tell me a little bit about those personal struggles as an example of of the difficulty of rising above that community without the availability of jobs within close proximity. Uh, The fact that the jobs have, have largely disappeared from the urban areas, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's a very important consideration here. And, and so many people, as they come out of school, as they um, uh, emerge from these communities, have no hope for the future. Yeah. Because the jobs are just not there. They're not there, and we need to do something about that. This is a big part of the problem. That when the jobs are not there, of course, young people make money any way they can. Mm-hmm. And the underground economy is 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 out there beckoning to them. At the same time, the role models that used to be there, um, hardworking men uh, involved in the manufacturing economy, many of those role models are, are, are no longer existent or they are simply not paid attention to. As I said, I think that in order to deal with this problem, we're going to have to do some big thinking uh, and rethinking about um, the economy. I think we're going to have to develop uh, a kind of a Marshall Plan for the cities of this country. This isn't just Philadelphia. It isn't just New Haven. It isn't just Pittsburgh. It isn't just Youngstown. It isn't just Bridgeport or Chicago. But there are cities all over the country that are going through the same problems, and we need to address that issue. Once the once the drug trade has become so prevalent in a community, it is it, it seems to be, as you describe, self-sustaining because uh, drug dealing as itself is somewhat predatory because your goal is to get customers who are going to come back. And so sure. you talk about people getting their friends and family members addicted to drugs, which then renders those people incapable of really seeking anything other than the next fixed, which leads to further crime and prostitution, which then further degrades the the area. So it, it, it seems like a it, it's a cycle that the only way to stop this cycle is by jobs. The only way to stop this is to provide alternate options for these young men and women as they are growing up. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's important for you listeners to understand, too, that in the community, and I know we said this in the opening of the program, there are, quote-unquote, decent people in the community, and there's a street element. And so many of the decent people, quote-unquote, they, they work for a living, they, they, they educate their children, they go to church, they do all these things to get involved with the larger economy to the best they can. Mm-hmm. But the street is, is a strong pull, you see. And this is, this, is, this is a minority of people in the community 
but it grows when there's lack of hope for the future and lack of opportunity. And this is what we need to deal with. We need to recognize that. You see. Sure. And that a, a lot of the children who are growing up on the street with the street values, it seems that they are there because of neglect, because of drug addicted parents or because of, uh, you know, like you said, the, the older generation of community heads, they, they are slowly disappearing. And, and the older generation now, uh, the middle aged generation um, is, is coming up. Uh, and some of those people grew up with with street values as well. So now we're now we're reaching a point in society where we have the multi-generational street values and we've got children who are being abused from from anger and frustration and or neglected. Uh, and so from a from a micro perspective, what can we do for those kids? I think that um, we need intervention uh, on, on the part of Companies, uh, uh, schools, educators. Uh, we need we need neighborhood investment. We need community investment. Mm-hmm. We need to recognize um, the problems that 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 deindustrialization uh, have have created in these communities, and the fact that jobs have literally disappeared. Yes. Yes, yeah. and and people are doing their they're doing the best they can, and once they get caught up in a cycle, it is very very difficult as you as you demonstrated through the stories of your you're helping this particular young man get a job and 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 get an attorney and turn himself around uh ultimately you know ending up back on the street and and getting shot because once you once you learn that particular code uh any sort of uh financial gain any sort of nice things you say it's 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 necessary to have those things not necessarily even as a status symbol, but as a sign that you are able to protect yourself from being robbed. That really enlightened me because I had often wondered, I would see, you know, rappers wearing the gold chains and and just wearing so much valuable uh, merchandise on their person. And I I never sociologically understood why that had become a a cultural phenomenon. And and your explanation that, you know, somewhat ostentatiously showing that you have, you know, wads of cash or expensive belongings, uh, it gives you street cred. And since street cred is, uh, is something that I think most people outside of that world just don't understand. I mean, it's become part of the common vernacular and people will say, you know, I have, you know, street cred in the accounting industry. And and so it's been watered down to the point so much that people don't really understand the origins of street cred. But most of the people who are living in the areas that people uh, are judging as being completely street are not that way at all. And and interacting, how do we create more canopies? Uh, my sense is this, the color line persists, but in a new and emergent form. And many blacks now work in a wider range of occupations than ever, not simply in menial jobs, but in professional positions in which they have rarely appeared before. Doctors, lawyers, professors, corporate executives, and many of them also reside in exclusive neighborhoods, and their children attend formerly white schools. And as black people have become increasingly more visible throughout society, um, the physical black ghetto persists. This iconography conditions uh, many Americans to think 
that the black person's place is usually in the ghetto, not in middle-class society, burdening them with the deficit of credibility. And this, this color line is what we have to deal with today. And it's, it's a very complicated situation, but at least illuminate the conditions and maybe points the way forward. That would be my hope anyway. Sure, I think so. And we've we focused so much on the on the inner city and on the ghetto because uh, your your book Code of the Street is uh, it, it it's just so phenomenal. Anybody listening, please read this book. I mean, it is extremely enlightening on uh, on both a macro and a micro level of the ghetto. But we haven't talked a lot about the middle class and and upper class uh, African Americans who are who are still struggling with that, uh, this societal construct in which blacks belong in the ghetto or that blacks still have ties to the ghetto or whatever external perceptions that whites um, or, or even other blacks are projecting upon them. People automatically mentally connecting them to a lower socioeconomic status and potentially a different moral code when when these are are people who have no connection whatsoever or who clearly have uh even if they have cousins and and grandmothers and and whatnot who are still are still living living the street code are being judged as living that code themselves so tell me a little bit more about the experience of of those African Americans in society, and 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 what it is like, what it is like for them to to be judged through the lens of the ghetto. Well, I mean, since the since the end of the civil rights movement, uh, as I mentioned, large numbers of black people have made their way into settings previously occupied only by whites. Though their reception has been mixed, uh, overwhelmingly white neighborhoods, schools, workplaces, restaurants, and other public spaces remain. And blacks perceive uh, these settings as white space, which they often consider to be informally off-limits to people like them. Meanwhile, despite the growth of an enormous black middle class, many whites uh, continue to assume that the natural black space is that destitute and fearsome locality so commonly featured in the public media that is the iconic ghetto. And white people typically avoid black space, but black people are required to navigate white space as a condition of their existence. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, these uh, spaces uh, are perceptual categories because the city today can be divided up into three types, uh, black space, white space, and of course, as I said, the cosmopolitan or racially mixed space and these spaces, from what I've been able to understand, are in flux, changing from black to white, white to black, and sometimes in between, as it were. Mm-hmm. And as I said, white people typically avoid black space, but black people have to navigate white space, um, and they want to do so in part because that's where the goodies oftentimes are. The decent jobs, the nice restaurants, um, school, uh, a lot of the things that are of value in the society. So the people who would uh, navigate this larger system are oftentimes doing it in uh, circumstances that they perceive as being uh, maybe uh, off limits to them. And sometimes they're reminded of this by the interaction and the reception that they receive, you see. 
uh, at the same time, um, people do what they can to survive. They navigate it. They figure out ways to, to deal with it. But it's oftentimes no fun when they're stopped or encounter this moment of acute disrespect, which people do encounter from time to time in these settings. Yeah, and it strikes me that you call this white space because whites don't think about that. I mean, they, they don't think of it as being – they look around, and, and if they see a homogenized area and, and they don't see a lot of diversity, or they do see diversity but don't even really notice it, they don't think of it as a white space. They just think of it as a space. So, right. uh, So what I'm hearing from you is that regardless of socioeconomic status, blacks are always feeling like they have to prove themselves in all areas of society. Right. It, it's complicated. I mean, not all blacks feel one way, of course. Well, of course. But, but these, are, these, are, these are perceptual categories. Um, the perceptual category of black space, the perceptual category of white space, perceptual category of, um, of racially mixed space, but again, these spaces, the so-called white spaces, are perceived as spaces that are off limits to them. And they can feel uncomfortable, uneasy, or whatever in these, in these spaces. That doesn't mean that they have to give in and, and, and depart, but, of course. But, they have, but they have to manage it, if, if, if you will. So what about yeah, you? Uh, I mean, you're a you're a, a sociology professor at Yale. You you you've worked at the University of Pennsylvania, and clearly you are are very separated from that uh, ghetto in your in in your life, in your education level, in your uh, proximity where where you're living. What do you? What kind of racism do you experience? If you're comfortable talking about that on a on a daily basis what what has been your personal experience as somebody that is is clearly on a a level that people in the ghetto would never reach but is completely accessible to middle and upper class whites and african americans how do you experience racism in that vein well, I'm just uh, about to publish a, a book entitled Black in the White Space, which tells the whole story. Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, at least a lot of it, hopefully. But um, uh, as you suggest, I mean, uh, much of my life has, you know, been uh, in the so-called white space. Again, this is a perceptual category. Right. Uh, I was born in the Mississippi Delta during the war uh, on a former plantation and my grandmother was the midwife when I was born. And uh, my father fought in World War II, returned and couldn't live in the South anymore. And the family moved uh, north uh, to South Bend. My dad had a fourth grade education. My mother had an 11th grade education. And uh, she worked as a domestic. My father worked as a factory worker at Studebaker's, the, the uh, defunct car manufacturer. Mm -hmm. And I attended the public schools in South Bend and grew up there and then went away to college to Indiana University in Bloomington. And um, uh, from there, I uh, received a fellowship at the University of Chicago. And from the University of Chicago, I was recruited to Swarthmore College. I taught there for two years. And then I was recruited by 10. And I taught there for many, many years. And then I was recruited by Yale. And so I started at the uh, symbolic 
the bottom of American society. Right. And now, uh, today, I operate at the symbolic top of American society. Mm-hmm. And there's a story uh, of that trek uh, from point A to point B. And um, this, to, to a large extent, what we're talking about is um, is, is living uh, in what could be perceived as white space, a space that is dominated by white people and essentially controlled by white people, as it were. Right. So this is this is this is part of my story, but but it's also the story of many many black middle class people today. Absolutely. And this corporation process I speak of is a process that I know intimately because I've experienced it. You see. Yes, my I actually I I did a show last year. My next door neighbor uh and her husband grew up in the Bronx River Project in New York City and uh and so she she wrote a memoir about their, you know, growing up there and and how they now uh live in a, a upper middle class area. It's sad to me that it is still remarkable when someone comes from as you said the what is considered the bottom ring of society uh, and comes to the the top of society that when a black person makes that transition, it's still remarkable. And and certainly uh, there are issues uh, all all the time that you deal with. And, uh, and as I point out in my, my essay, the white space, the reception of blacks in this kind of space has been mixed. I mean, people have been receptive, but not totally, uh, if you will. So yeah. it's complicated. It's not a simple thing at all. I would uh, imagine but, so. But the, would... problem, but the problem of the white space, as I say, is a problem that, that black people um, uh, as a group kind of recognize. You know, again, it's a perceptual category. Right. And when I say that, uh, it's, it's, it's a set of issues that black people know they have to manage, so to speak. And they, and they do. They do. And they, they, and they do so typically very, very well. You know, but yeah. it is a situation, a set of circumstances that people have to, have to manage. I'm trying to represent what I've uh, come to know both um, as, a, um, as an academic, but also as a, as a person. So. Yeah, and your your work has really opened my eyes to this because, you know, through walking through a market, a farmer's market, or um, a, a set of stores in the, the most integrated cosmopolitan canopy, it would never have occurred to me that someone else was having to think and alter their behavior and add an additional layer to every action that they would take for fear of being perceived a certain way. And so that that was one of the most profound things that that I I think I've ever read on any topic is just that there's there's so much going on in the minds of other people in others. I mean any other demographic, uh, you know, men, women, racially, uh nationality, uh, heterosexual, homosexual, transgender. I mean you 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 just a lot of times you don't think of those extra levels when you have a certain level of privilege, you don't think about the additional actions that are necessary with people who don't have that privilege. And, I'd love and, to have you back when your new book comes out to talk about it. Well, I'd, I'd love to come back. 
you. I mean, we could go on for three hours. I mean, there's so much information there. I mean, there's just so much. Like, you, there's no yeah. way that you can comprehensively cover this topic in an hour. But I do think yeah. that we've covered it enough for people to understand a little bit more about how we got where we are. I am. I'm so glad my car got towed. If my car had not gotten towed, this interview would never have happened. And so, well, so well Germantown Avenue was just an interesting street for sure, and all the different um, aspects of the city of Philadelphia are represented right on that street. Yeah, yeah, they really are. They really are. It's really amazing. Well, Elijah Anderson, thank you so so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Well, you're most welcome. And for The Authentic Woman, this is Shannon Fisher. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.